Welcome to Holy Unhappiness, conversations about the expectations we have of what the life of faith will feel like. I'm your host, Amanda Held Opelt, author of the book, Holy Unhappiness, God, Goodness, and the Myth of the Blessed Life. Each week, I'll be speaking with writers, pastors, artists, and friends about the myths we believe about the good life. Together, we'll reimagine what blessing can look like if we are willing to look beyond our culture's definition of happiness and success. Welcome. I'm glad you're here. Today on the podcast, we're going to be talking about marriage and singleness, which I write about in chapter two of my book. And I'm so thrilled to be joined by Caitlin Shess. Caitlin is an author, speaker, and perpetual theology student. She is the author of The Ballad and the Bible, How Scripture Has Been Used and Abused in American Politics and Where We Go From Here, which is coming out in August of this year. She's also the author of The Liturgy of Politics, Spiritual Formation for the Sake of Our Neighbor. Her writing has appeared in Christianity Today, The New York Times, Christ and Pop Culture, Relevant, and Sojourner. She has a master's in systematic theology from Dallas Theological Seminary and is currently a doctoral student in political theology at Duke Divinity School just down the road from me in Durham. This is a conversation not just for married people, not just for single people, I believe, I hope, it's a conversation that can benefit the whole family of God. So thank you for listening. Caitlin, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Amanda. We are starting strong with North Carolina-based authors. We had Sharon Hottie Miller last week. Love for our first episode. Yes, we had lunch together a few weeks ago, the three of us. It was lovely. Yeah. Um, and now you, you're based in Durham, um, and a couple other North Carolina folks I'm hoping to get on in the next few weeks. So, um, so yeah, thank you for being with me. Oh, of course. Um, so, okay, you guys that are listening, um, you're probably, if you're familiar with Caitlin, you're most familiar with her work uh, where she writes about the intersection of theology and politics and culture. But I kind of went out on a limb and asked <laughs> Caitlin if she'd be willing to talk with me about something different, like take a break from politics. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is because I guess over the years, I don't know, I've, as I've followed you, I've kind of every now and then seen you write a blog about marriage and singleness, uh, write um, maybe little very insightful tweets here and there. And I was like, (laughs) I wonder if she'd be willing to have like a a long conversation with me about this Mm -hmm. issue of marriage and singleness in the church. And you graciously agreed. (laughs) 
Actually, quite happily agreed, I think. Yes, yes. Um, so I, I'll start with this question uh, for you. I write in my book that, uh, about this kind of implicit mandate that I felt like I was given in the evangelical subculture uh, that you got to get married and you got to have children, right? Mm-hmm. That like to experience the fullness of biblical womanhood. I needed to be a wife and mom. So what I'm curious about is, uh, was this kind of fundamental link between marriage and motherhood and biblical womanhood, was this something you also experienced in the church? And if so, would you be willing to tell me more about that? Yeah, yes, um, definitely. I mean, I think sometimes explicitly, but very often I think just the water I was swimming in. Mm-hmm. I mean, I didn't know as a as a child, as a teenager, as a young adult, I didn't know women who were single past, you know, 35. Like, that just wasn't something I experienced. Um, And it was talked about, I mean, marriage and parenting was talked about so much in the context of even young adult women or especially women's ministry things that I did kind of have the sense that that was you know, that kind of covered the whole range of spiritual formation for women was talking about marriage and parenting. And as a kid, that's what I imagined my life would be at this point. You know, I'm almost 30. It had never really occurred to me until recently that I might not get married ever, um, that I might not have children, um, or at least biological children. Um, I always assumed that at this point, I would be married and have children. And I had two parents who, like, are disgustingly in love to this day. Like they are so in love and they oh were, my goodness. They were all, wonderful awesome. parents. Yes. It's so good. It's so yeah. good. But they got married quite young. My mom was 20 years old. She had me just a few years later. Um, I was her first child. And so, and then she had my younger sister pretty quickly after that and then they were done. And so her entire adult life, I mean, she was in college when she got married, her entire adult life was defined by marriage and parenting. And then especially because my dad is in the military, she really couldn't have a normal career, you know, and she loved being a stay at home mom. And I loved having her as a stay at home mom. But it wasn't until pretty recently that my mom kind of said, like, it's, it it has been hard for me to imagine a life for you that is good Mm. and flourishing and faithful, that doesn't include these things, just because that's been her experience. That's been the experience of most of the women who she's had close relationship with, especially women who have mentored her or discipled her. And so that's, that's been true of my whole, you know, kind of Christian experience. And then now I'm at a church that's in a progressive city. Durham's pretty progressive, a very educated city. And so my church now has a lot of, especially women who are single into their thirties or forties, very highly educated, struggle partially in part because of that, you know, mm-hmm. um, to be married and and most who want to be married and many who would like to have children. So this is kind of the first time in my life I've been in a church where that's a pretty normal experience, but it is very generationally defined. So we have really struggled at the church that I'm at to bridge that gap between mm-hmm. a large amount of the younger women who are not married, who have careers that are a really important part of their life with older women who we want to be in relationship with, but who just, you know, statistically, very, very few of them have had a life that looks anything like the life that me and many of my friends have had. Right. It's it's one of those things that, depending on what church you're in, it's almost like what they say, it, it was caught, not taught. It may not yes. have been said directly, this is what you must do, but it was kind of yes. the normalized script that we all inherited, I think. Again, depending on on your situation and and where you were um it's it, 
Caitlin Beatty, who I think Caitlin, you work with Caitlin Beatty on mm-hmm, your mm-hmm. Uh, most recent book, which we'll talk about yes. a little bit at the end. But um, she once described marriage as a kind of spiritual credentialing. Um, what What do you think she she meant by that? And <laughs> do, do you agree that that that's that's kind of a problem within the church? That's kind of a problematic yeah. message. Yes, I cannot tell you how many times I've been in conversations at churches where I realize that they think of me as younger than I am. I'm pretty young, but they think of me as younger than I am just because I'm not married. So, I mean, I had a woman, I was over the young adult ministry at a church in Dallas, Texas, and I loved it. And I had women who were older than me, who I was, you know, ministering to, many who were married, and it it was largely not a problem. But I did have a woman who was a few years younger than me, I think maybe three or four, joined the church, got involved in the ministry, and after a few months left and basically said, I can't be discipled by someone who isn't Mm -hmm. more spiritually mature than me, and I know you're not because you're not married. And... I had never had someone say that so explicitly before. I had gotten that. Like you were saying, I kind of had caught that over time. But that was the first time I had had someone explicitly say that. And I don't really blame her. Like, I think she, she was newly married. I think there were questions she had about her marriage she needed help with. But there was also this kind of assumption that the experiences I had had in a variety of relationships just had nothing to say to the to the questions she had or the experiences she was having. She would share things with me that, you know, I didn't have anything I wanted to, like, teach her about marriage. But I knew what it was like to have close relationships that were difficult. And I wanted to provide whatever I could, including, you know, introducing her to a woman at the church who had experienced something similar in her marriage and could help her. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But... Um, I do think that the kind of thing that she had learned over time was to be spiritually mature is to be married. And I think at the root, there is this like kind of good idea in that, which is that marriage can sanctify you. It should be sanctifying Mm -hmm. you. I think the problem with it is that in a really Western individualized kind of culture, we think marriage is the only kind of relationship you can have that puts that kind of those kinds of demands on you and that requires that level of commitment and causes you to experience sacrifice for someone else. And that's a really like awful, sad thing to think about single people's lives. Not just that we don't yep. have the joys of marriage, but that we don't have people who need us. And and that's actually sometimes true. Like we do live in a culture where you can be a single adult and really not have obligations to other people, not have close relationships. But for Christians, that shouldn't be an option. <laughs> and for people who are not, it's not how humans best flourish either for someone to live completely unconnected to other people. And so that, that was kind of, I think the, the disconnect for me was not just that marriage can't do those things, but the assumption that other relationships and other people's lives couldn't also do that. Couldn't also cause you to sacrifice and learn about difficult relational dynamics and have deep responsibilities to other people. And that often the church wasn't willing to partner with single people in creating those kinds of bonds, saying, I have other people in my life who I am deeply obligated to, who I show up for, who I sacrifice for, and who do the same, really importantly, who do the same thing for me. Yeah. Yeah, I actually went digging into the Twitter archives because I remember you tweeting something about this one time. So Google's really good at finding old tweets. But yeah, you said... um, Scary. Yeah, I know. Actually, that is frightening to think about. Um, Yikes. Careful what you tweet, folks. Um, But you you wrote, um, when you only ever use marriage and parenting to describe powerful sacrificial love, it hurts single slash childless people who are pouring themselves out for people they are not legally related to. 
And there, it, there does seem to be this kind of strange obsession or preoccupation with the metaphor of marriage um, yeah. it, it, within the church context. I write in my book um, that, um, you know, God is husband, the church is his bride. This analogy should never supersede the wide and beautiful array, array of familial images mm-hmm. um, scripture presents to us. God is like a mother. We see this in Isaiah 66. God is like a father. We are his children. Jesus is our brother. He is our friend. We are co-laborers. And we, the church, are siblings. When Paul tells us to love one another as brothers and sisters, he's asking us to enter into a relational commitment that in the ancient world was every bit as important as marriage. Yes. Um, it's only in the family of God that we can experience the fullness of life together with all its diversity of affections. So, yeah, where do you think this overuse or elevation of the metaphor of romantic love comes from in the church? And we don't have three hours. We, I know we right. can talk about this for like days and days and days. <laughs> yes, yes. Go back well, to you... the medievals and all that stuff. Right. But <laughs> Yes. I love how you talk about it in your book in terms of – I mean, this is a pretty modern Western problem. And part of it is a kind of individual culture mentality. Like even if it's not literally just the individual me, it is my small nuclear family. Um, and the idea that, that you write about that marriage – has to fulfill like everything, every need, every desire, every sense of identity and community. It was never meant to hold all of that. And I do think, as you were just alluding to, I think part of it has to do, and Beth Allison Barr has written about this as well, part of it has to do with the Reformation, Mm -hmm. kind of trying to de-elevate the status of largely celibate single men and women. Um, But I also think part of it has to do with you know, we live in a context in which we can move much more easily than anyone's ever been able to mm-hmm. move. And so your little unit can kind of be its own separate thing. Mm-hmm. The, none of that is really surprising with like the history of our own country of just kind of like Western nations in general. What is more surprising to me is that the church has just kind of gone along with that. Mm-hmm. Even if we do want to kind of question or critique some elements of medieval Christianity's view of sexuality, which is totally fine, um, the idea that we would think that humans most fundamentally exist as tiny little individual nuclear family units is like the opposite of the Christian idea. Like this was the radical thing that the church had to offer to the first century was to say, actually, the lines that divide you, whether that's ethnicity or socioeconomic status or just kind of biology, those lines don't define the church. Like the first uses of the word Christian were because they didn't know how to define this group. It kind of defied social categorization. And I even think about this a lot. I mean, on a daily Sunday morning – I think we tend in most of our churches to exist as little units that just kind of Mm -hmm. happen to coalesce together when part of the vision of the church. It's why I love that my church has pews now. Like it's a lot Mm -hmm. harder to exist as little units when you're just like, well, your family might have three people, but this pew fits four. And so two of us will be here to get, you know, Um, it's just I wish that that were more true. And there are some practical ways that it could be true that it's not. I mean, I remember when I was on staff at a church and my boss had a bunch of young children that I had nannied for in the past. So I had close relationship with these kids. And one Sunday he was preaching. So his wife and his children were there kind of early and they were a few rows ahead of me. And one of his daughters ran back to my pew and said, Oh, I want to sit with you today. And um, her mom came up to me and was like, Oh, I'm so sorry. She's bothering you. Like I'll bring her back. And I thought, 
well, we're one family here. Mm -hmm. Like, let's act like it. You know, I would love if, I mean, I can tell you with experience, this particular little girl was going to distract someone during church, probably. (laughs) I would love to be distracted during church. Like, I would love to have a mom who is tired of being distracted and needs a moment to focus to have her need met by my joy. my It's my joy to have this little girl sit next to me. And it is one of the most beautiful things about the church that that sometimes happens. It doesn't always happen. But the fact that it ever happens, that someone's need meets someone else's joy is a miracle. And children yeah. and, you know, the variety of needs that we have in the family of God are one place where there are plenty of people at my church, especially many of the women who are not married and don't have children and expected to at this point, that would genuinely love not just to care for someone else's child. We know how to do that. Many of us are signed up for nursery. What we would really love is a family to say, you are our family. Like, Mm -hmm. yes, we want you to care for this child when we can't. Um, We would love for you to babysit. We'd love for you to have them, you know, sit with you during the service. But that's not the whole of it. We'd love for you to come over for dinner. We'd love for you to come on a vacation with us. We'd love for like for that kind of deep mutual sacrifice and bond to be a part of what sets apart the church from the world. The the world knows what a mom caring for her children looks like. The world doesn't really understand why a single woman who would love to just live a carefree, you know, has all has no obligations, could go do whatever she wants, would show up on a Sunday morning and take care of a bunch of children that are not her own, except Mm -hmm. for in the miracle of the church, we're one family. And I've com- gone completely off of the question that you asked because I love talking about the church as a family. But that's, that's I think, the beautiful image that we should oh, be offering. I love it. Y'all, Caitlin does a lot of brilliant academic work on politics, <laughs> theology, and her day job. But she moonlights as an encourager to mothers of noisy children oh. in church. <laughs> She's always tweeting about all the cute kids making noise in her church. And I literally I think about those posts when my very noisy child – is in church with me. I literally <laughs> preached like almost half a sermon on Sunday with my four-year-old sitting in between my legs on the oh. stage. And I was like, for a minute, I was like, this is bad. And then I thought of you and I thought, no, no, this oh, I'm is okay. So glad. It is okay. <laughs> it's so good. It It is good. It is okay. And I, so I think if there was more of that, like, just like you said, this I don't cross pollination is not the right word, but just this this intermingling of different mm-hmm. um, groups and and demographics within the church. We could learn so much. What what do you think that married people could learn from single people? Mm. Mm. You know, I, that, I love that question so much because I think the assumption is that it only goes one way. Mm-hmm. Like I can learn from married people about being married because obviously eventually I'll be married, even <laughs> though that's not true. Um, yeah. You know, I think especially for people who have been single past kind of the, like, expected age, which I think I'm a little past that, but I would really turn people towards people who are much more past it even than Mm -hmm. I am. But I do think, you know, this was true in an era of the church where there were more people who committed themselves to celibacy that they witnessed to the rest of the church of the sufficiency of Christ, that that they really not only could be sort of single-mindedly focused on ministry – Um, which again, I think that's true, but it gets sort of distorted when we articulate it in a way that makes it sound like single people don't need close, intense relationships, which is not true. Um, but I do think that, that married people who 
you know, find rightfully a lot of their great purpose in life and a lot of their attention goes towards family life as it should be, I think can learn from single people what it looks like to build that in a different kind of way. Like if we are going to be a fuller, truer family of God as we're intended Mm -hmm. to be, like you were saying, the family metaphors all throughout scripture, I I really think it's going to be single people who help us do that because both we have the need, (laughs) like I really do think I need to be mutually obligated to other people to be Mm. more fully human. So I'm going to be the one that instigates it more than the person who's like, I have two toddlers and like, I'm so focused there. Um, But I also think it's single people that are going to be more likely to articulate it because we Mm. have a desire for it. And I think we have a vision for it. We've tended to think about it more often. I don't know how often I keep joking that if you get enough single Christians together, at some point they'll start talking about having a commune because we just like want to live with other people. We want to be obligated to one another. And so I think there are some really incredible ways that the church could more fully witness to the reality that we are one family. And I do think single people will be, you know, really involved in that. I I love that you brought this up because there's, it just feels like there's fewer and fewer opportunities for um, obligation oriented relationships, duty driven relationships within culture beyond marriage. Marriage feels like the only one that's left. I read a statistic that participation in convents is down like around 70% since earlier, you know, since 100 years ago. Um, If you look at, you know, you read that book, Bowling Alone um, by by Putnam, it talks about how people don't even join bowling clubs anymore. They're not part of these kind of groups or clubs where they make these commitments together. And so single people are kind of left... I don't want to say tetherless because that makes it sound like you have no no responsibilities in life, and that's certainly a myth. But this sense that um, that society perceives that there's no um, duty driven relationships in your life, yeah, yeah. and there can be, and there should be, and, and the church should be the place where we create those 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 type of bonds and covenants and commitments for yes. all people, not just married people. Yeah, and I think it would it would serve us better to talk about it that way. Like my church recently made a change where um, you have to opt out of serving in the nursery. Like everyone has to do a background check, but if you're on the rolls, you will get scheduled. And, you know, sometimes when we talked about it, an elder would get up and kind of try and encourage people. But what they often slipped into, no, no fault of their own, this is how we talk in the church often, was just sort of like, we've got a burden, guys. We have to mm. shoulder it together, you know? And I thought, what, how different would it be if we said, y'all, we have the unbelievable gift of being obligated to other people. It Mm -hmm. will sometimes require sacrifice of us. But like I said, I think I am more fully human Mm -hmm. and I experience more fuller joy when I am actually obligated to other Mm -hmm. people. And if that elder had stood up and been like, great news, guys, like we get to belong to one another. That would be a different way for us to think about the ways that we do have to shoulder burdens. We do. But if we talked about it more as like we get to belong to one another, yes. I think that would make a difference. Yeah. We talk about obligatory love as if it's a burden. We talk about, um, um, I don't know, duty as if it's it, it, it weighs us down. Um, and that, you know, the the beauty of romance, you know, or of married love is the romance and the, the, yeah. the romantic euphoria. But to me, as I've as I've been married, you know, um, gosh, a decade and a half. Actually, I'm not sure how long I've been married. We, we talked about it the other day, and I thought it was 12 years, and it turns out it's 14 years. But <laughs> but I've learned that, like, the beauty of our relationship is not 
the romantic euphoria. It's mm. the, it's the, the commitment. It's the fact that it's, it, it's permanent, you know, that it, mm. it's, um, something that we're both bound to. And there's no reason why that form of love should only exist between romantic partners. Like that's, yeah. but we've kind of downgraded that form of love, that duty driven love as if it, if it's mm-hmm. a, a burden or, um, there's not something beautiful there. Uh, yeah. You know, I, I when I wrote this chapter, I I, I worried that people who, uh, you know, it's the chapter title is marriage, and I worried that people who were single would think this chapter isn't for me. And I I really wrote it with single people in mind. Like I had single mm-hmm. friends read it to kind of help me work through the content because I really do believe that the idolization of married love harms both single people and married people because for me it set me up for all these wild expectations of who my partner was going to be to me Mm -hmm. in that marriage and like you just so beautifully said no one relationship is supposed to be the container for our our identity and all of our meaning but then it hurts it hurts single people because it kind of um I don't know. It it suggests a, a lack of wholeness in your relationships Mm -hmm. if 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 you're not married so um. I think Shannon Shannon Martin, who's going to come on the podcast too in a few weeks, she says, it turns out marriage, even on its best days, can't erase my longing for a wider mm. web of attachment. Um, so, yeah, I guess I'd, I'd love to hear just a little bit more from you on like, where do you think we can find some of those attachments? Where can we find those relationships? And, and how can they add beauty to our life? Yeah. You know, I mean... It's probably not surprising. The first thing I think about is church. Yeah. <laughs> but, but it, I mean, it is true that like I, I was talking to um, an elder at my church recently and she was talking about her teenage daughter, um, saying something to one of her friends in high school about how she had a friend getting married this summer. And her friend in high school was like, how, is there a teen bride somewhere around? Like, how do you have a friend getting married this summer? And it's because she's friends with someone, you know, 10 years older than her mm-hmm. at our church, but they are in the worship band together and they have this close relationship. And mm-hmm. so, That kind of intergenerational thing, I just think the church provides in a way that few other things can. Um, But I do think, you know, I I live in a neighborhood now where I am the only unit in the, like, eight units that circle me that has one person living in it. Mm -hmm. Like, I live in a neighborhood that is is a little lower income. The average, you know, unit around me has at least three or four people in it, which blows my mind because I don't know how they fit (laughs) people in that space. But it just means that there are people outside a lot. There's a lot of kids outside. Mm-hmm. And I had no idea until I moved here. This is the first time I've had, like, a neighborhood and, like, kids in the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't realize how important just small things like Halloween were to, mm-hmm. like, just give ki- candy to the kids in my neighborhood. That bridged a gap. You know, that started a bit of a relationship. Yes. And that, I think, part of the reason why people don't often find that larger web in their actual neighborhoods is both because we just like are lazy and don't want to reach out and do the hard work of talking to someone, but also because it's longer. Like we want immediate. And if you're going to build a relationship over time Mm. with a stranger that you don't share anything with other than a zip code, it's going to take a while. And that comes back to this mentality I think a lot of us have of, I am, like you said, I'm I'm not tethered to anything. I don't have any roots. You know, I can move anywhere. I can plop into any new context and I don't really need anyone. And I have learned being in this neighborhood that you just like when you are in greater need financially or otherwise, you will build closer relationships. And it's caused me as someone who, you know, I've been in grad school for a long time. Mm -hmm. Like this is the first time in my life that I'm sort of financially stable. 
And I've realized with financial stability comes the ability to not be connected to other people. Mm. I can Uber to the airport. I can have food delivered if I'm sick. I can, And it's taken a lot of work and kind of learning from my neighbors who don't have quite the same means to do that to say, actually, even if I could do those things, I'm not going to. I'm going to ask a friend for a ride to the airport. I'm going to take a friend up on the offer to bring me soup when I'm sick. I'm going to mm-hmm. – because I want to build those kinds of connections. And I fear that, like – not only the more that we move around, but the more kind of financial ability we have to not feel obligated to other people, the worse it's going to get. And so even just those little things of like, I'm I'm going to make choices that are less convenient for other people, and I'm going to reciprocate. Obviously, I'm going to mm-hmm. take people to the airport. I'm going to show up for them. But I'm going to make decisions that put me in closer relationship instead of making me be more isolated and more kind of proficient by myself. Isn't it so odd how it's our privileges really that isolate us so much of the time? Yes. And that's true kind of a culture at large, like our our mobility, our autonomy, our food stability. I mean, all of those yeah. things are, are positive things, but kind of the, the flip side, the slimy underbelly is that we, when we're kind of autonomous, then then we lose that that wider web of social support that was so necessary in yeah. the past when communities depended on one another for for harvest for raising the barn for yeah. you know um caring for one another when we we were sick we didn't go to hospitals our our neighbors took care of us and yeah. and now our privileges while some of them have been beneficial have really isolated us mm-hmm. um when kids come trick or treating to your house do you teach them about the harrowing of hell cuz i know <laughs> You guys, that's kind of one of Caitlin's little niche uh, areas of interest. <laughs> yeah, I've got politics, kids in church, harrowing of hell, just like a natural combination of things. Yeah, I don't really. do that, but, you know, now you've given me ideas. Maybe I will. <laughs> it could be a whole, like, display, you know what I mean? Like, on your front porch. But, um, well, before we close, I want to ask you what I'm asking all my, my guests is um, – as you've grown in your in your in your walk with the Lord and on your journey of faith, um, how are you, has your perspective, I guess, on what it means to be happy or to be blessed? How has it changed or evolved? Hmm. You know, I was serious earlier when I said that, like my sense of a good life was so shaped by my parents in a good way. Mm-hmm. Like they had a great, they've had a really great life together, um, and it's been hard to transition from there's one vision of a good life, there's one kind of cookie cutter to there are lots of ways to both be faithful to God and to have a flourishing full life. And um, I literally have on the wall next to me um, a sign that says, Blessed Rather. Um, Mm. And it's from the story in Luke 11, where, um, you know, a woman praises Jesus through his mother, says, Blessed is the woman who birthed and nursed you. And Jesus, I like to imagine, was, you know, surrounded by female disciples because he had many that had potentially left, you know, a conventional life to follow him. And he replies to this woman praising a woman, his mother, for very traditional virtues for a woman of having a male child who was significant. And Jesus says, blessed rather are those who hear the word of the Lord and obey. Mm -hmm. And that has helped me think better about my own life to say there's not a cookie cutter, there's not a specific path that I have to take. I want to follow the word of the Lord. I want to obey. And I don't know why God in his wisdom has has made my life different, so different than I thought it would be. Um, but I look back and I think I am so thankful for the things that I with great chagrin <laughs> obeyed. <laughs> mm. um, I am thankful for 
the real goodness in my life now that I wouldn't have experienced if I had forced my life to be the way that I had thought was a blessed life. Um, And I've gotten to just not only see those really good, joyful things, but have the experience of looking back on great uncertainty and seeing God's faithfulness. um, When I think if I had kind of forced the path I thought I would have, I wouldn't have had the opportunity to see God provide in so many of the ways that he has, especially as a single person who kind of was in a brand new place multiple times in my life. I've gotten to see God provide in incredible ways when I didn't have a network, I didn't have resources. Um, And it really has put me in a position, I think, where the church I have a fierce love for the church. Mm -hmm. The church matters to me, even though she has hurt me, um, because I needed to depend on the family of God when I didn't have kind of the traditional family around me. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's such a popular thing right now to dunk on the church at why am I getting emotional all of a sudden? Um, I think, and I understand it's, it's fair. Like she needs to be taken to task for her failures and the harm that she's done. And yet she's one of the few remaining communal institutions where those deep um, bonds can be formed with other people. Those lifelong bonds, those lifelong acts of service towards one another take place in the church. And it's so beautiful. And I'm I'm so grateful that people like you are out there championing the church and all that she has to offer to the world. So Mm. – Thank you so much. Tell us what you're working on right now. You have a book releasing that is not about marriage and singleness <laughs> or the harrowing of hell. No, unfortunately, neither. Um, yes, yeah. I have a book coming out on August 22nd called The Ballot and the Bible, and it is about how scripture has been um, interpreted and misinterpreted throughout American history. But really, the goal of every chapter is to help us read the Bible better together. Um, our friend who you mentioned earlier, Sharon Hottie Miller, um, endorsed it and then later gave like, you know, the actual endorsement, not the one that gets sent to the publisher. And she said, you know, Caitlin, this is really just a book about how to read the Bible. And I was like, mm. you're right. I sneak attacked on y'all. I said, this is a book about politics. So you would buy it. But really, it's just a book about how we should read the Bible together. More. Right. <laughs> yeah. You're leveraging um, the big political season that's coming up yeah, to just yeah. instill in people a love for the Bible and what it has to offer us. Yeah. I think that's amazing. Um, Everyone who's listening, I hope if you don't follow Caitlin Chess, please do. You'll, especially if you're a mom with a noisy kid in church, you're going <laughs> to love what she has to say. Um, but truly, Caitlin, your your wisdom and your insight and your faithfulness to your studies is is a gift to the church. And I'm, I'm really grateful to you. So thank you for coming on. Thank you so much, Amanda. I appreciate that. Romans 12 verse 9 says, Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in love, honor one another above yourselves, never lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer, share with the Lord's people. And it goes on to say, rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn, live in harmony with one another. Thank you for joining us today. I hope you tune in next time when we'll be talking with Kayla Craig about parenting.